Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And before we get started, I'd like to direct your attention to wealthformula.com, where there is an abundance of resources for your financial educational pleasure. So you can download my free copy a PDF copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth there. And you can also get that by simply texting me at 44222 and typing wealth formula, one word. Now for today's show, I, I, you know, I realized that it had been literally, I mean, months and months and months since the last time that I did an Ask Buck show. So there's these questions that have been accumulating uh, in my box. I think a lot of good questions. And I wanted to take some time today and answer those questions. That's one of the things that when you have a show like mine, where most of the time you are, you're listening to me interview other people, you don't always get my own perspective on things. So this is kind of a nice way to do that. And I do encourage everyone, you know, who wants to be part of the discussion to send me, uh, send me questions and we will get to them either through the Wealth Widget, which I've done a few times, uh, which you can also subscribe to, by the way, or by answering them through this forum on the podcast. Let me know if you want to mention your name or not when you do that. And also tell me where you're from. Uh, that's that's always nice to know as well. And how old you are and that kind of stuff, because um, that also helps me get things in perspective. Before I forget, I do want to mention last week's show with Teresa Fetty from Provident Trust was on self-directed IRAs. This is a really good response. I'm glad to see a lot of people decided to go uh, open that. In fact, we had so many people that we <laughs> that I uh, was able to get that price that she was offering down even lower for Wealth Formula listeners. So now it's a $50 setup fee and then it's $250 annually just to, to have a self-directed IRA. So, I mean, that is a really, really good deal from a very quality company. So I would I would definitely check that out if I were you and I didn't already have a self-directed IRA. I mean, I don't actually have a retirement account because I do use Wealth Formula Banking for that purpose. But for those of you who have IRAs already, want to start using it for real assets, that is a great opportunity. Go to the wealthformula.com. And then if you go to the resources section, that's where you'll find that coupon and, and then click on it, fill out your information and send it to me and I will get you connected there. Anyway, so like I said, we're going to do Ask uh, Buck today. And actually, rather than just read to myself and so on and so forth, I thought it would be fun to have uh, Lane Kawaoka from uh, Simple Passive Cashflow to come on the show and join me just to have some follow-up questions. So when we come back... We will do 
the second edition of Ask Buck. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I have a special guest today with me. It's Lane Kawaoka. What's your show called again, Lane? Simple Passive Cash Flow. You know, I, I know what it is. I always screw it up, though, because it reminds me of Pat Flynn's podcast and internet marketing. I, I'm, I'm assuming kind of you riffed off of that, didn't you? Well, his is a simple passive income. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Cash flow is... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just opening you up to a season desist right there, okay? Yeah. Anyway, so thanks for joining me, Lane. So the reason I have Lane on here, I mean, uh, Lane is a friend. He's got a, this show. You know, it's really geared towards more, I guess, up-and-coming professionals, right? People who may be a little bit younger, a lot of engineers, a lot of people who live in Hawaii, and uh, his focus is primarily real estate. Lane is a, is a friend, and we, we talk sometimes. Because we were doing this episode of Ask Buck, I thought rather than me just read off questions today, what I'd do is I'd have Lane read them off, and then we can have follow-up. Because sometimes, as we've talked about before, it's when, when you're in a certain place in your life, sometimes you forget that not everything is terribly obvious. And so... Lane will help us uh, to make sure that we that we answer questions completely, right? And right. also, the way I see it is, you're kind of like Captain America. I'm the dude with the arrow. Yeah, there you go. Uh, hopefully, I can. Ask. That's great. That's perfect. Where are you calling from, Lane? Yeah, Honolulu. (laughs) That's right. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. It was Honolulu, right, specifically. But okay, so why don't we get started, Lane? Question one, why don't you just, you know, tell me who it's from, what's the question, and then we'll go back and forth. All right, this uh, first email is from Olivia. She asked, what would you tell your children is the most important thing to understand about money? She continues on. She says, that is uh, hard to make, but harder to keep. That is like a tree and must be nurtured in order to grow. That it's not important unless you got money to buy you time. Tell us what you feel about the purpose of money and what is it at its basic uh, philosophical level? Well, that's a complex question. You know, what do you tell your children is, I think, ultimately the biggest thing. So my kids are little. They're eight, five, and two. And so, you know, I haven't talked to them that much about money. I I started breaching the topic with my oldest. So you got some experience, you know, selling, doing some, some lemonade or, you know, some sort of bottled beverage arbitrage at a fair. And so she got really excited about making money, but you know, it was hard. It's sort of hard for kids, especially who have, who are growing up with privilege to understand what it's all about. Right. You know, it's the whole, what is money thing? And First of all, I think it's important for kids not to grow up thinking that money is dirty. It's remarkable how many people actually do. And I will tell you that I think, you know, I'm a physician, as you recall, Lane, and I think fundamentally that's one of the biggest problems that physicians have is in the back of their heads, they think that to talk about money, to make a lot of money, that there's something dirty about it. And it's not. And it's not dirty. 
it's a key to ultimately live your life for more of a purpose, right? I mean, it is, if you have enough money coming in, if you have, you know, if you have wealth, then as Dean Graziosi said on our podcast not long ago, if you have all these things, then you can be yourself, Okay, so that's what I think money's purpose is. I also like the idea of money. A friend of mine from Genius Network, Kevin Donahue, had a great quote in a meeting, and he called, what did he called money? He called it thank you notes. So if someone was paying him for something that he did, effectively, it was like a thank you note. You know, if it cost $25,000, there were 25,000 thank you notes. So I like that too, because what I think when you look at money, when, when you make it the way that I like to make it, a lot of times it is because you're doing good in the world and that you're benefiting other people. And the more people you touch, the more thank you notes you get. So those are my two takes on that. What do you think? You've got like younger kids and, you know, you know, I don't know if you remember back in college, but when I was in college, there were a lot of kids who just had a lot of money from their parents and they didn't really earn it. What's your your thought? Are you kind of going to change your your messaging towards your kids at some point? Any thoughts yet? Well, you know, I, I actually have an idea on what I want to do as soon as my oldest gets. You know, we might do this pretty soon, actually. Kind of thought about this recently. I, you know, I had somebody on the show who was a Amazon person, and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make a project. I'm gonna make a project with each one of my kids. You know, based on where they are in their life, and that way we have something that we kind of do together without any other kids or with mom. So with the oldest one, what we're going to do is we're going to start a, we're going to start an Amazon business together. And and what I'm going to do is kind of get her hooked on the idea of making money and that she can make more by, you know, trying harder. And, you know, immediately what my goal is there is to eliminate the idea that money is something that is finite. I want her to think of money as something that if she works at it, she can make more. And then when she starts making it, I'm going to start slipping in these ideas about, about investing it and kind of do it in a very, you know, sneaky way. I think it's very, very difficult to, for a kid who's little to, you know, I think, or even a teenager, frankly, to really start thinking about investing and all this stuff until they start putting themselves in a the situation for themselves and realize how it benefits them. So if I tell her, listen, you, you know, made a hundred dollars or whatever, why don't we, why don't we go put this in American homeowner preservation and you can make, you know, you can, you can, you can make uh, money every month. You don't have to worry about making more every time you make it. If you spend it, you start from zero again. So why don't we, you know what I mean? So I'm thinking about trying to do this as sort of a, Away, but I think it's it's very hard to teach children, even teenagers, about this without having them uh, immersed in it and having it mean something to them personally. So, so that's kind of the plan. We'll see how it goes. I guess step one is if you don't have the money, you're not going to even start to learn about it. Yeah, so. yeah. Do you have anything All else right. to add so on the money question? question? Well, you know, I don't, I don't have kids, so I'm just talking ideas. You know, from ideas. So. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, you got to you got to start with somebody trying. Is somebody actually willing to marry you? Which is a big problem, I think. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Question number two. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question two from Bryce. He's a video producer out of Canada. Got fans out in Canada, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. So his financial situation is this. He's got a production company with a bunch of debt, about $20,000 of debt, some personal debt, and also he's got about $7,000 in savings in a universal life plan that was opened uh, six years ago. And he has access to about $40,000 of loanable money, sort of like that wealth, uh, your wealth formula banking concept there at play. His business is averaging about five to $10,000 a month and could certainly use more volume as they're always cash poor. His margins are about 5% after expenses and could be better if he worked on it a little bit to get more of a client base. So generally, he's running into a bit of a deficit every month and on the personal side after the company takes its draw. Uh, Here's this question. For someone like himself in that type of financial position, would you recommend doing with that $40,000 of a zero interest loan from the universal life. Uh, He's got a couple options, you know, first put the money into marketing for more business and drive up sales or two, put the money into a down payment on a rental property and then pay back the loan as the equity and the property grows. We'd love to hear your input, Buck. Well, listen, you know, we, these are, these, you, you've heard me talk about this before, this kind of thing before Lane. This is a situation where it's not really an investing problem. It's a money problem, right? In order to build wealth, you have to have mass, right? So I always talk about this in terms of this equation. I like that wealth is really has these variables and it's mass, meaning the amount of money that you put in into investing, right? That's the mass. The velocity is how quickly you turn it around. And then the last component of that is leverage, which just amplifies the whole thing. You know, you, you velocity and leverage will only take you so far. If you don't have the mass, then you're, you got a mass problem. You got a, you got a, you got a money problem. You don't have money to put in investments. It doesn't matter. And what, you know, at the end of the day, what's going to happen is if you've only got 40,000 bucks to your name and you put that down, what, what's, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to get $4,000 a year, maybe. And, and, and depending on your age, um, I don't, I don't know that that would be the best choice. I think, you know, what complicates is, is where it's coming from. You know, if it's a, if it's coming from an insurance policy and it, uh, you have to pay it back, you know, over a period of time as a, you know, it has an interest rate or something, I think it gets more complicated. But broadly speaking, what I would say is in a situation like that, it's just not very money, very much money. You got to figure out how to make more money, right? And I think this is actually something that we see a lot because, you know, there's a lot of real estate shows out there. There's a lot of like shows that are, are really talking about real estate and investing and so on and so forth. And Sometimes when people listen and they think they listen to these shows, it, it, it almost seems like all you really got to do is, you know, buy, start buying some apartments or some houses and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got financial freedom. Well, that's, that's just not the case. The case is that you have to make money somehow to fuel the system in the first place. So for this particular person, I would say if you can figure out how I definitely, if you want to, you know, what I would do in that situation, again, I'm, you know, I'm not going to advise you, but what I would do in that situation is try to figure out a way to make more money. So there's no quicker way to make money in my book than through business activity, right? I mean, if you put $40,000 into a business, you know, your return could be well over a hundred percent in a given year. If you're good at business, that's the catch, right? If, if you put it into uh, real estate, it might be 
I mean, which one's going to make you more money, right? I mean, that's really what you got to be focused on if you're not making money. Does that make sense? Hopefully that's, uh, that's clear. But I think the message that I have is remember, you got to have, you got to make money. You got to have money in order to invest. And it's, it's not just about buying houses and things like that. You got to make money and do it quickly and turn the money over. That's how you get wealthy. Yeah. So I, I see it as like a three stage thing here like you know a lot of people they can't even save money they're spending they're buying doodads and they can't even save it so that's the first step you got to keep your money and then you've got to save maybe about fifty thousand dollars start investing and then you multiply it and go bigger like what's your thought on like what's the crossover point to when someone just starts applying a lot of these investing techniques you know, when do you switch from getting money to investing? I don't think it's a switch. I don't think it's like, you know, all of a sudden you just do that. Here's the thing is for majority of people, the majority of people that I talk to and, you know, my show primarily, you know, I have a lot of high paid professionals, you know, engineers, doctors, lawyers, and so on and so forth. And so they've got mass in place, right? I mean, uh, yeah, let's, you know, people talk about, ah, uh, you don't want to trade hours for dollars and stuff. I get that. I get that. But in at first you might need to, in fact, you might even need to trade more hours for dollars because what you're trying to do is, you know, put that money into investments over time. Here, Here's one way to break it down. You start doing that. You start shoveling money into the system. Again, you throw your mass and you use it for leverage, you use it for velocity and so on and so forth. Before you know it, you've, you're starting to accumulate cash flow investments or, you know, cash flowing investments. And the goal initially, I think for everybody ought to be, you know, theoretically is to get to the point where that cash flow is covering your cost of living. And so what I call that is the the point of zero gravity, right? Because for most people what happens is they you know you people sometimes wonder why the wealth seem to the wealthy seem to get wealthier quicker than everybody else, right? Why is that? Well, they got more money to invest, right? I mean if you're if your overhead is like 2% of the amount of money coming in and you're investing 98%, imagine how quickly you can grow your money. Right. So, so the goal is the sprint is to that line of zero gravity where you're no longer dragged down by your overhead, by your own bills that you can cover that amount. So to answer your question though, I mean, I think it's not really a, a switch. I think my point in, in talking about this situation being a, a situation where you have to make more money is just because focus sometimes needs to be appropriate to where you are in life. I mean, if you're. I don't think you ever stop investing, but I think, you know, it just where you're investing. And if you're a business person, your money and, and, and you're confident that you're going to do well, you're, you're going to make more money if you invest in your own business than you are in other things. Right. So I wouldn't really think about it as when is the time to start investing because you're investing in yourself. Right. And, and that's the idea. Yeah. And I'm reading here, you know, he's got this 40 grand to play with. Isn't that how you kind of made your claim to fame, you know, throwing money into your marketing for your business? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm hesitant to say it because, you know, entrepreneurships and startups fail a lot, you know, but that's really what I did. I mean, you know, when I look at the first business I started, my own cash, probably a hundred, hundred fifty thousand $150,000 went into it, maybe 200, who knows. Over the years, that business is yielded millions of dollars, right? So that's a pretty good return. It's hard to find in apartment buildings, right? 
So why wouldn't you do that, period? Well, first of all, there's a tremendous amount of volatility in business investing that's not in real estate. So the idea is to use a volatile business that has an opportunity to make a lot of money and then start shifting that money towards stable, slow-burning, wealth-creating vehicles. Is that clear? Right. You know, I'll say it just because I know you're trying to be nice, but I mean, you're, you're kind of a, it's a self-selecting bias that, you know, you were successful doing this, but you're saying that most people will probably fail at this. And for a lot of folks, your day job is probably where you should stick to. No doubt. And I think that's one of the dangers of the, 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 the shows that are out there, right? Where it makes you think like you're better off quitting your day job. No, what I'm telling you is, Hey, Hours for dollars is not a bad thing if it's going to get you to the point of zero gravity quicker. You know what I mean? Like you may, you may hate your job, but it may be the way that you make the money the quickest. So you could either quit completely and, you know, try to figure out how you're going to make as much money as you used to and be on, you know, be on the treadmill for longer. Or you could say, shoot, this is the way I can make money the quickest. I'm going to do this. If anything, I'm going to do more and just keep dumping money into this machine that's going to help me to get to that point of zero gravity quicker. Right. And I I think, you know, just the reverse engineer of a lot of these shows, I mean, most people that listen in are high paid professionals. I mean, a lot of people don't have college degrees. It's hard to believe, but a lot of these guys that gravitate are, you know, the something for nothing, naked rich attitude. And the way I see it is they're these shows are just trying to find bird dogs to find deals because the deals are the hard thing these days. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, you know, it, everybody, and I think the big issue for, I really think what it is, is it just comes down to, you know, we all want to be aspirational. Who wants to listen to a show that tells you you're, you know, you're pretty much screwed or something like that, right? But, but I, I think what I like to do at least is try to be very practical about it, right? I mean, they get rich fast techniques. They work sometimes. I mean, but they don't, not, not most of the time. And so what I like to do is I like to put it into a formula. I like to say, listen, I mean, getting to that zero, you know, point of zero gravity and that point that where you can really amplify your wealth much quicker is within closer reach than you think it is. But the closest way from here to there is a straight line. It's not. It may, it may not be taking detours off into things you're not good at. You know, that's that's the point. All right. Next question here from Luke says, I was invited to an investment class at our university, the University of Northern Iowa. This is the second class. He talked about the main investing tools and some of the grammar on this. These questions but this is coming from the engineer. So, yeah. so he says stocks, bonds, real estate and cash. It was very interesting to hear the side of a stock investor. He was explaining to over 150 people if you had put 100 grand into the stock market in 1929 and added $5,000 per year, right now you'd have about $7 million with an average return of 9% return geometrically. He was speaking about the low-cost index funds. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, you'd be dead, right? I mean, if... I mean, I mean, like if you started putting in five thousand dollars and five thousand dollars per year in nineteen twenty nine is a lot of money, right? That's like a ten percent of a home, right? Every I mean, year, you could buy, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a kind of one of these classic, you know, wealth advisor BS kind of things, and they drive me crazy, frankly. But you know, I think they believe what they're saying. 
because what they look at is they, they try to break these things down like this. But first of all, I don't if if it were true that you could count on nine to ten percent exponential growth over the period from you know now and what you have until say you know thirty or forty years from now, you'd probably be in pretty good shape. Problem is that I don't believe that that's uh, and historically we know that that's very unlikely at this point. What's happened? So if you look at these exponential curves, they do they never show you the huge corrections that happen every ten years, right? So. They didn't used to happen this often. They happen a lot more often now. And if you look at the last three decades, so we had 1987, we had 99.2000.com, we had 2008. And well, hey, look, was that 10 years from now, 10 years from then? Maybe it's next year. Who knows? But every one of those, we had a massive correction, you know, like 40%, 30%, whatever. And they just kind of omit those. Now, over time, you know, I think if you look at some of the growth that occurred uh, and average things over, then 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 it and then it might work out when you look back from 1929. But the concern I have is a things are different now. We're seeing massive corrections every decade. We know that you know I had a friend of mine who has a artificial intelligence hedge fund on the show recently who was talking about the fact that 90% of the trading is basically done by computers at this point. You've got massive global instability with the economy. You've got $20 trillion of debt in the United States. All this stuff means that it's not the same as the past, right? It's not the same as the past. So, you know, of course, past performance does not dictate future future returns is what the other thing they like to say, which is basically, I just told you a bunch of stuff, but I'm going to tell you that it's probably not true. So all is this to say is that I I don't buy that argument. Now, here's here's an interesting thing, though. And I've talked about this a little bit. And I talked about this with Chris Miles when he was on Wealth Formula Banking, which if you want to learn more about, go to wealthformulabanking.com and watch that webinar that Chris and I did, can actually recreate that exponential curve without the dips. Right. So you can get effectively a tax, a tax equivalent of about, you know, eight, nine percent return at an exponential rate of return or a compounding return that will not have corrections over the next, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, however long you have to live. So if you want to go on that curve, why not go on a curve that, you know, doesn't have corrections? Right. So my all is this to say is that if you want exponential returns, you like the idea of that, then that's something to look at, because at least that way you your money's predictably growing and you don't have to worry about, you know, the next bank failure and you're just about ready to retire. And then, you know, you lose 40 percent, 50 percent of your money. I mean, that's the nightmare. That's what happened in 2008. Yeah, I think these are the questions that kind of drive us in crazy when people try to kind of support the uh, the large brokerages that have these low-cost index funds as a way to hedge against losing everything seems to be the normal sentiment <laughs> which is also like the like these artificial like i don't want to mention the companies but these you know they're kind of app-based you know you put your money in they're very low cost and they're pretty sleek looking you mean etfs yeah etfs and then there's some other you know cool like you can do these asset allocations based on your age and it's using a lot of cool graphics. To yeah, a bunch of buckets, right? The, the millennials. The buckets. 
Yeah. The slow growth, the high growth, the, the buckets are full of BS is what they are, right? I mean, no one can tell you, you know, what this is going to grow at, what's that it's going to grow at. They just put these random numbers out there and you're supposed to believe it. And I don't know where they get those numbers from. I don't understand it. And that's why I won't invest in it, right? Now, okay, let, let's put things in perspective. The equity markets right now are massively bloated. Everybody, not even the country, you know, not just the contrarians, not just the Peter Schiff's of the world, not any, I mean, literally I had, I uh, talked a few months ago to, you know, the, the chief economist at Fannie Mae, and he was talking about how these, uh, that we're in a balloon right now, right? That we, we are amidst a very large balloon. And Janet Yellen recently, the Fed chair, although I don't know if they just if Powell's, yeah, I think she's still Fed chair, right? She called valuations in the stock market generous, right? So everybody inside the contrarians, the optimists, everybody is looking at the market right now and saying there's a balloon, right? So so what the heck would you be looking at these sleek products? Who cares if they're sleek or not? I mean, I I don't, I don't get it. I just don't get it. There's such a lack of control. Now you could take that same money and if you want, you know, use a wealth formula banking product. And if you don't want to do any cash flowing stuff, whatever, but you want to grow at that, that kind of compounding rate, the curve that they show you, then go to wealthformulabanking.com and watch the webinar because that's a predictable way to do it. Now, let me tell you one other thing because I, you know, my friend Howard, who's the artificial intelligence hedge fund manager, you know, we were talking about this. Um, he's in Genius Network with me, and we were in this uh, meeting last week. And we were he he was interested in how I felt like the the you know my my audience took his information. I said, well, you know, it's sort of the opposite of what we talk about, right? To be in the stock markets, but then again, I think if you're doing it the way that Howard's doing it, I don't think it's uh, I don't think there's a problem with that. Why? Because Howard has an unfair advantage. He uses a bunch of robots and he makes 1% per month compounding. That's an unfair advantage. If you've got the unfair advantage and that's what you want to do, then use it. But most of us don't have the unfair advantage. All we do is we sit there, we put stuff in there and we pray. Praying is not a very, praying, praying is just not a very good strategy for investing. I, I think you see these guys, they, they come out to the real estate meeting, the local real estate meetings from time to time. Some of the guys who dabble with the day trading and they, they've had some success these last few years. I mean, you, you can be an idiot and have success these last few years, but like they have this firm, firm belief that they figured it out. Well, listen, I, I, mean, I just don't see the point. I mean, I, I just don't. I mean, if you want to day trade, you know, that's a job. I and mean, if you get really good at it, good for you. I mean, I, I have... You know, I have a friend who's a day trader and I think he does pretty well, but I mean, that's, that's a job, you know, that's not investing. Right. And if you are, you know, if you're a famous trader, if you're like, you know, George Soros or something like that, then yeah, I mean, Ray Dalio, these guys may, I mean, yeah, but I mean, most of us aren't that right. Most of us are, are professionals. And what we're trying to do is figure out a way to grow our money that's relatively hands off. So you maybe, yeah, I mean, if you want to be in the equity markets and you invest with a guy like Howard and he's got a bunch of robots, you know, and you have an unfair advantage that I could, I understand that. I do. For me, the reason I invest in real assets is because of predictability. I like to understand. I like, you know, I like generally like cash flow. I generally 
not always. I don't really have to have it anymore because I'm not in, you know, I'm past zero gravity at this point. But I like predictability, right? I only like to invest in things that I feel like I have the the cards stacked in my favor. Okay. So if you, if you look at, you know, people wonder why I'm in, uh, I'm interested in life settlements, right? So basically this, this whole thing where you buy life insurance policies from people in their eighties with multiple, multiple health problems for 50 cents on the dollar. Well, I like it because, you know, they need the money, whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that part of it. But what I really like about it is that it's a guarantee. Yeah. And it's a guarantee. You know, right now, if you're 80 something, you got multiple health problems, you're going to die. All of us are going to die. That's a guarantee. That's why I'm interested in that. I'm interested in this whole wealth formula banking. One of the things I love about it is these insurance companies are so powerful. They've been paying dividends out since they, the inception of the companies like Penn Mutual started before the Civil War and has not missed a dividend payment. So it's highly predictable. They're stronger than banks. So if, if you don't like to get your hands dirty with, you know, real assets, then that's a good way. And it's also a good way because you can double dip and other things, but just giving your money to somebody and saying, Hey, those buckets sound like a good idea. And I bet you are going to get me 10% or you are going to get me this, you know, it, it just doesn't work for me. It just doesn't make any sense at all. I think you just mentioned that you, know, you do what you had your competitive advantages and the life settlements makes so much sense. I mean, that stuff you understand. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody understands it at the end of the day, right? When you're 80 something and, and, you know, you got all sorts of health problems, you're going to probably, you know, not live for that much longer. So, so it's that, so that, that kind of thing, like, I think I like things that are highly, highly predictable for the most part. I have, I have a few things, like I'll dabble in some things, you know, like I've been, (laughs) my new hobby is like, is like cryptocurrency, which is highly, highly speculative. There's nothing there, but you know, I'm like I said, I'm past zero gravity. And as long as you know, the rules, you can break them, right? You can break the rules. I mean, I know that I'm not going to go out there and put my life savings into crypto. I'm just, what, what I do know is I think that there's a market capitalization issue there with cryptocurrency that over time guaranteed over the next several years, that market's going to get bigger and bigger. So if I have broad exposure to some of the cryptocurrencies, that it stands to reason my money would go up potentially at a pretty high rate. But what, but again, don't, don't look at that and say, Hey man, you're being a hypocrite. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying if you, if you have some money to play with, do whatever you want. And it sometimes it's just fun to do various things. But when we're talking about our life savings and creating wealth and so on and so forth, I think you got to stick to what is very, you know, what you understand, what is, you know, real, what, where are the cards sacked in your favor? Right. And to use that Marvel uh, metaphor again, I mean, you can, there's things that you can do because you're a network that other people can't do. Or they shouldn't do. They do, but they shouldn't do. Right. I mean, I've allocated, you know, 10 to 15% towards some speculative stuff at this point, which you know, I mean, listen, if you get to a point where you've got money and you, you know, you can say, I'm going to, I'm willing to bet 10%. And if I lose it all, it won't hurt me. But if I win, it could, you know, make me a ton of money. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad bet, right? It's an asymmetric, it's an asymmetric bet. I mean, here's, here's the next question from that I hear a lot about assisted living facilities. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the market that 
obviously the demographics, I mean, all the baby boomers are retiring and you've kind of dabbled in that. Maybe talk to us a little bit about how you, you know, how much money did you allocate to that? How much time and, and what was your finding? Well, it, you know, first of all, I guess it's, it goes to show that even things that don't make sense or things that make sense and that whatever, sometimes they're not, they don't always work. So there's risk involved with everything. You know, I was doing some of the stuff with single family home, assisted living. And the, the issue that I ran into, so I bought this house and we had a great plan in place. The problem was that even though we were zoned properly, the neighbors decided they didn't want it to happen. And so, you know, they decided they didn't want it to have happen. And we could have, you know, we could have tried to push through, but there was just too many ways for them to slow down the process and create, you know, a lot more expenditure for us. So at the end of the day, it's decided to sell the house. But what do I think of that? Now, are you talking about big boxes? Or are you talking about little? I mean, it's a totally different industry, depending on. I guess when people normally talk about doing assisted living facility, they're thinking about, you know, picking up a distressed home and that's a five bedroom and expanding on the bedrooms. And, you know, the, the business plan sounds phenomenal, right? So yeah. What's the problem? We know. It's, I mean, listen, it's a business. Right. And I'm not saying that a bad thing. I just think that you have to remember that you have to remember that when you own a business, when you buy a business, you need to expect that you'll be making a lot more than you are with real estate. So one of the things that I think is a little tricky in this space is to understand that if you're starting something like this and picking it, picking something up, yeah, it, it might show that you're making 30 30% return or something like that. But how much do most businesses sell for? Most businesses, small businesses sell for a multiple of profits, right? And it's usually three or maybe three, you know, two, three, maybe up seven for, for something bigger, whatever. So not like 30, like a tech company, right? Yeah. It's not like that or a publicly traded company, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, Yelp, I think Yelp, yeah, Yelp had like a valuation. I think I just wrote about this recently. The valuation was like 400X, right? So it was like if you had a half million dollar profit business, it would, it would, you know, <laughs> it would be like worth $200 million or something like that, something crazy. But that the point I, I bring up with the smaller stuff is just remember you're not, you're not just buying real estate, you're buying, you're buying a business. And so when you buy a business, you have inherent volatility, you have inherent risk and you have inherent, uh, inherently there's a lot more work. And uh, unless you're going to buy something that's huge and has management in place. So I'm not saying it's bad. I think you need to understand it for what it is. If you're going to do that. Now, once, once I actually didn't do mine, I realized it probably wasn't for me anyway, because, you know, maybe I would have made two, 300 grand or whatever. I don't know. But <laughs> here's the thing is that after a while, when you're in, uh, doing various business projects, you realize that there's ones that you might be making a lot more money than you are in another one, but they're the same amount of work, <laughs> right? So, so if you can figure out like, okay, maybe this is going to be a lot of work. And, but what's my upside? My upside is 300 grand. Well, maybe that might not be worth it. I mean, you, you might be able to put the same amount of work in something and easily have something where the upside is a million. 
I, I won't at this point start any business where I don't think that the up, upside is in the eight figures. And I, I just won't because I'm kind of done with it. I've got, you know, I've got some, and I'm talking about profits. I've got, you know, I've got some eight figure revenue businesses right now. And, you know, they're not, they're not going to grow into nine figure revenue businesses. And so I want to have something where if I'm going to do it, I'm, I'm going to spend the time. I'm going to look at what the possible outcome is and say, well, that's a possible nine figure revenue, you know, maybe eight figure. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. 